This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Put an edge on your friends with a Pussy Magnet. Oh, hey. Welcome, 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 my lovely lumps. What should I say? Lovely labs. I don't know. They're both good. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. <laughs> oh, cringe. I couldn't help myself. Anyway, I am your host, Freya Graff, and I am a holistic sex coach and educator and yoni mapping therapist. So basically, I make my living massaging vaginas and teaching people about sex. Yeah, pretty cool. (laughs) So as you can imagine, we are going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, though, I would like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this podcast, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country, and I pay respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. Now, if y'all are ready, let's flap and do this. Oh, is there such thing as having too many vagina jokes in the one intro? Whatever. I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. All right, my lovely lumps. I'm so pumped today because I've got my first penis owner, first dude, in the labia lounge. Pretty excited about that, and I know you will be too. I've got Cam Fraser, who's a certified professional sex coach, certified sexologist, registered counselor, and registered tantric yoga teacher. Hot damn. His work integrates scientifically validated, medically accurate information about sexual health with sacred sexuality teachings from the mystery traditions. And as a coach, he helps men go beyond surface level sex and into full-bodied, self-expressed, pleasure-oriented sexual experiences free of anxiety and shame. Fuck yes. I'm so into all of that. I absolutely love Cam's work and I he's one of the only accounts I actually like read on social media because I'm generally pretty <laughs> kind of get on and get off and get the fuck out of there. But I usually pause and actually read Cam's shit, which is pretty huge um, for me. So yeah, I'm really, really excited to have you here today, Cam. Thanks for joining us in the Labia Lounge. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for that amazing uh, compliment as well. I really, really uh, take that to heart. So thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, pleasure. So tell me, as a men's sex coach, what are some of the main things that men come to you for? Right. So I, I get uh, questions every single day from um, people on social media. And so these questions come in the form of uh, dysfunction queries, I suppose. So, they're, they're usually these people, these these men, I usually work with cishet men, usually ask me about erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation or low libido, low desire, or they're um, having some sort of like function slash dysfunction issue. 
that's that's a very common question. I also I also get like penis size as well. Like you know, how do I make my penis bigger? Is my is this size okay? That's also a common thing. But when I work with a client, when I actually take on someone who maybe starts with these questions about function, uh, the the work that I do with them, the issues that usually pop up is underneath that. So what I mean by this is like those physical concerns or issues that they're having about you know the function that their their uh, penis or their anatomy is or isn't doing usually that comes from somewhere it doesn't necessarily come from a medical condition or a hormone or a pathological thing if it does i refer them on to like a uh, a medical professional or a, uh, a trauma-informed you know a mm. clinical psychosexual therapist but if it's if it's not that if it's like something something else if it's a story if it's a narrative it's like if it's emotional if it's energetic then i'll do the work underneath that kind of surface level question and a lot of the times what these guys are coming to me for is issues around self-worth and mm. self-acceptance and um and and like essentially like they they're, they're worried about their masculinity they're worried about whether they're man enough they're worried about whether they're not not just ne- necessarily man enough but whether they're enough in general they they think that something's wrong with them if they're uh ejaculating quicker than what they want to ejaculate or they think that something's wrong with them if they're not maintaining an erection for a certain amount of time or they think that something's wrong with them because they don't want sex as often as their partner wants sex and so there's this undercurrent i suppose of like worthiness of, of self-worth issues and so mm-hmm. that's that tends to be the crux of a lot of the 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 physical problems that that present um when i'm talking to to clients and so that's a lot of the work that i do as well is like normalizing and um, giving permission and educating as well, rewriting stories, challenging uh, beliefs, limiting beliefs around sexuality and male bodies and what our experiences of pleasure can entail. Uh, so, mm-hmm. like that. So that's the like the two tier response that I have to to that question in particular is like, yeah, I get a lot of questions about function and concern about how to last longer and how to make my ejaculate bigger and all this <laughs> stuff about function. <laughs> but that's all very performance oriented, right? It's all mm-hmm. about like what it looks like. The work then that I do with these guys goes a little bit deeper than that into and it and kind of shifts from performance to pleasure. And we, t- we start to talk about like, well, does it really matter what your penis looks like or how long you last? Is the sex good? Is it pleasurable? Is it enjoyable? Are you feeling connected? Are you feeling intimate with your partner? Like, what does sex mean for you? Like starting to ask these more introspective and broader questions rather than like, here's five tips that you can do to last longer. That's That's really good for... Social media, that's what I do on social media a lot. I say, here's five tips to last longer. Here's five tips to, you know, um, have a stronger orgasm. But then when I do work with clients, it's a lot more of those like deeper, more introspective narrative Mm. kind of work, I suppose. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally, totally. I relate to that. I've, um, I've got a really similar approach because I feel like, you know, people come to you for one thing and then when you dig a little deeper, you kind of realize actually the work needs to be done on a sort of deeper level or, you know, there's there's usually, I find with my work as well, and I did used to work with men a little bit more, there's usually more of an emotional, um, psychological, energetic thing going on, but they're like coming to you for a physical thing. Um, and it is usually yeah. based around performance or like I want to last longer or I want to da 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 um, and yeah, I feel like there's usually a whole foundation of like really fundamental work that needs to be done before you see improvements in that like physical manifestation of of that. Um, 
And I, yeah, I think so much of what I noticed working with men and now I work more uh, predominantly with women, um, hetero women who have male partners, I'm, I'm sort of seeing this like real, uh, struggle with like, I guess, masculinity and, and how they express their masculinity, how they embody it, like what, what they define that as. And because there's such a, like toxic view of what masculinity is or like a misguided view, I think like culturally um, there's all this like pressure um, from society and from our culture for men to be a certain way and give off, you know, an air of confidence and be these like stoic impenetrable like fuck lords that just know exactly how to make you squirt across the room and, you know, like I, I really feel for men having all this pressure on them because then they're, you know, obviously coming to you going like, oh, my God, I'm not measuring up, I'm not performing like I'm expected to or like I think that I should be, I'm not man enough. So, like, could you kind of talk to us a bit about like what you feel like a healthy expression and embodiment of masculinity actually means to you and like have you had a bit of a journey with your own masculinity because you've been brought up in this um yeah this environment of like expectation and pressure around what it means to be a man Mm, yeah this is um a really uh like i'm really passionate about this topic so i'm i'm glad that you've you've asked me and and the way that i you know you use the word toxic there and i know like the term or the phrasing toxic masculinity people get a bit upset by it and the and it doesn't really resonate with me as well the the terminology that i like to use is um that came out of uh social work from the 1980s with an activist called paul kivel um and he works a lot with young boys uh in in primary school and high school and he talks about man box culture and i really like Mm -hmm. this idea of man box culture because i think it does a a better job of summing up what it is that we're trying to identify than the phrasing toxic masculinity does Mm -hmm. and essentially the way he described it was like there's uh, an un unwritten or unspoken set of rules that young boys and men are expected to follow so that they fit within this man box, right? And if you don't follow those rules, if you do something that takes you outside of that box, then you get ridiculed and ostracized and called names, right? This is where we get like the the um, kind of pejorative slang of like calling someone gay or calling them a pussy mm-hmm. or calling them, you know, whatever, and and a lot of those words, what they're what they're pointing at is like, well, this person is not a man because they don't fit this man box. They're they're lesser than a man, and this is where we see the denigration of like the feminine in general and femininity mm. and womanness kind of in general from that kind of masculinity. That framework of masculinity is like, okay, this this narrow framework is what it means to be a man. If you're not following this narrow framework, then you're not a man. You're less than. You're feminine. You're gay or you're whatever it is, um, and so. In the workshops that I do with men, I often try and elucidate like what those rules are. So, I'll I'll ask them, I'll say like, what are the most stereotypical things that you can think of, of what it means to quote unquote be a man? Like, just think as stereotypically as possible. I get them to rely on like TV and movie tropes and things like that. And so, some of the words that often come up to describe that man box, I suppose, that unwritten set of rules is like, they've got to be straight, they've got to be tall. Uh, they got to be white pr- predominantly. Um, they got to be a lawyer or a doctor or have like a high paying job. They got to be like sexual. They got to be confident. They got to be muscular. It's just like a very like normative, very stereotypical and um, and very limiting, right? Because we mm. we know how like men as a cohort, but also masculinity in general, 
is so nuanced and there's so much diversity to it that to prescribe this one idea of it, this box of it, and if you don't fit in that box, then not a man, you get your man card revoked, is so detrimental. Um, Mm. And so, that's like the way, that's the framework that I use to think about masculinity, I suppose. And so, my own personal journey with that has been- um, yeah, it's, it's, it has been a journey, I suppose. Like, it's it's not been a straight line for sure. Like, when I was younger, I very much tried to, to subscribe to that idea of fitting inside the box. And, um, you know, I was, even though I wasn't incredible at sport, I always, like, felt like I needed to do sport to fit in with the, the fellas that I was in high school with. You know, I was, um, I drank uh, here in Australia. That's, like, a big thing. If you're, you know, in the man box, you, you have to drink. Um, you know, I was into sport and drinking. And then I was, like... When I started having sex, it was, um, you know, treating sex a certain way as well. So, like, I had to um, – well, this is my, my my expectation of myself at the time was, like, I had to be the dominant, assertive kind of pursuer of sex. I was the active participant in sex and the young women I was being sexual with were, you know, I, I the way I'd framed it was they were the uh, recipients of sex. They were kind of like the passive participants. They're, they are the ones that, like, let me – do sex to them essentially uh, and my mentality around sex at the time was like this is so crude so i apologize is every hole is a goal that's the kind of mentality that i had and a lot of young men have um with regards to sexuality and, and sexual experiences uh, and it was all um it was it, it was all like done in a way it was, it was done in a performative way right because i didn't want to get bullied by by my mates or by the men in my life, the young men in my life. I didn't want to get called names. I didn't want to be ostracized. I didn't want to step outside the man box because then my life would be more difficult in these, you know, um, male circles, I suppose. And I was, you know, I was an athlete as well. I was, I was in these locker rooms, especially as a, uh, te- you know, an older teenager. Um, I was studying over in America and I went to, to university to play sport over there. So, I was, you know, in these kind of college locker rooms as well and so the conversations were um quite misogynistic and Mm. quite you know toxic if you want to use that word um and so like my journey kind of stepping out of that really happened with um it was quite serendipitous actually i I fractured my back actually injured my lower spine and through um my clinical rehabilitation for my injury i was introduced to pilates and then through pilates i was introduced to yoga through yoga, I was introduced to breath work and then meditation and then kind of just spirituality or new age spirituality in general, um, kind of through my rehab. And this was when I was in my late teens and early 20s. So, it was kind of like the first time in my life that I had slowed down and started to listen to my body, like my physical body, like how I was physically feeling. And I, I distinctly remember like noticing how much tension and tightness and contraction and constriction there was in my body. Mm. And so, doing these, these these somatic modalities, I suppose, these bodywork modalities, I started to release that physical tension, right? I started to release that that constriction in my body. I started to open up and loosen up and, um, and expand at a somatic level. And there's like times I remember like halfway through a Pilates class, just like bursting out into tears. Or like halfway through a yoga class, my back was sore trying to hold a particular posture and just like not being able to do it because of my injury. And, you know, the frustration that kind of comes with that would just like skyrocket and I would just you know, have all this rage just you know, bubble up inside of me and, and not really understand where it was coming from. So, like these emotions were starting to, to come up. As I was tuning more into my body, I started noticing more of my 
um, yeah, more of my emotions, more of my emotional state and, and my feelings in the kind of emotional sense of the, the word. And so, you know, at the time as a, as a, you know, someone in my early twenties, um, my mentality was still, although it was shifting a little bit, my mentality was still like, fuck, I can't let my mates know that I'm crying in yoga. They're going to fucking <laughs> take the piss. So I had to, um, my, my, my mentality at the time was like, I've got to do something about this. So I went and saw the counselor and said, I'm having these, these issues, right? I'm, I'm crying and rage and all these emotions just to help me deal with them really. And, uh, so the counselor put me onto a psychologist and I ended up just doing talk therapy. I just did the work, you know, I just did the, just went through therapy, I suppose, and like unpacked my narratives around what it meant to be a man, why I was ashamed of expressing my emotions, why I didn't want my mates to find out that I had emotions, like, what it meant for me to be a sexual man as well. Like, why was I so focused on performing in a, in a sexual sense? And, and, and yeah, so just, just unpacked and, and unwrapped and rewrote a lot of those stories about my masculinity and sexuality. And so that impacted the way then that I started to show up in my life. I started noticing that because I was less tense and less uh, con- constricted and contracted in my body, there was, there's less tension there that I was able to breathe more and I was able to slow down more when I was having sex. And so, like, I wasn't, you know, um, I wasn't having uh, any, like, sexual dysfunction issues, right? That, that quote, quote, unquote, dysfunction. I wasn't coming so quickly. I was a bit more in control of, like, my pleasure. I was just more in my body. I felt more confident in my body. And then because I was more comfortable with my masculinity and kind of who I was and I was being a bit more vulnerable, I was, I was used to talking and I was going to therapy, I started talking to my sexual partners as well. I started asking them what they were into. I started kind of breaking down the barrier of like, this is what a man does. This is what a woman does. And and that's the way sex has to go. Kind of started to talk to my partners about their pleasure and started, you know, inviting them to join me in conversations about sex and vulnerability and and things like that. And so, um, I noticed that my sex life really transformed for the better um, in my early 20s. And then, you know, that extended out into my relationship with the men in my life. And I started noticing that when someone said some bullshit in the locker room that I would speak up against it um, because I didn't, in the most like compassionate sense of the word, didn't really give a fuck what they thought about me anymore. I didn't really care about having to perform my masculinity for them. And if I didn't fit their prescription of masculinity, then they would, you know, revoke my man card with whatever the fuck that means. So, <laughs> I, um, so, I, so I started like talking out against them and, and there was a period of time actually where I felt quite lonely, where I had a group of friends who – were fitting in with that kind of old paradigm of what it means to be a man. They were very much in that man box culture. And as I stepped away from that, there was a period of time where I didn't, I felt like I didn't really have a lot of friends. I, did, I felt like I didn't really have a lot of men in my life who, who embodied the values and uplifted me and supported me. Like I went, I went on a period of like not drinking alcohol for a year mm-hmm. and um, all my friends from that kind of old part of my life, they took the piss. They were, they were mm. like, oh, you're such a pussy, like not drinking, mm. like what the fuck's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't want people in my life. I'm trying to do something for my health here and these, you know, my friends aren't supporting me. My quote unquote friends, my mates aren't supporting me in this. So, it took me a while to kind of find a new group of men um, in my life who are more supportive, who are a bit more vulnerable, who are mm. wanting to encourage me to, to pursue things that they also share, you know, in, in terms mm. of their values with me. So, so it's yeah. been it's been a been a journey. I think that's a big fear for a lot of men actually is stepping outside of that I- idea that we have of masculinity and, and exploring something else and being alone for that period mm-hmm. of time of, of like having to find new friends. I, I I think that is a big fear for a lot of men about why they uh, and it's a resistance for why they don't do the work. I think. 
Totally. Yeah, totally. I've, I've got quite a few friends and ex-partners who've been through a pretty similar journey, like that same trajectory, and then definitely faced the bro culture um, and the fear of like losing their friendships. And I was kind of just always reminding them like, hey, I just don't really know if you even want these people as friends, if they're, you know, they're not supporting you and rather than like raising you up and like taking your lead and really like taking your sort of change and growth as an opportunity to reflect on their own kind of patterns and then maybe join you on that, they're, they're dragging you back down. So I do really believe that we, we kind of tend to grow out of and shed uh, layers and versions of ourselves and with that we grow out of and shed friendships and it, it does feel sad and it feels scary but yeah I think it's like a valuable part of like committing to that that self-work and that self-growth um, but when you were talking uh, it kind of made me it triggered a little memory um, or a thought because I was I'm thinking like on the other side of like there's you know a couple of sides of the coin and you know, there's so much these days, there's so much man bashing and, you know, calling out of quote unquote toxic masculinity. And then there's all these expectations of like new age sensitive modern men. And then this obviously like creates a fair bit of inner conflict and confusion for men um, because they're getting really mixed messages about what it is to be a man and how they should be and blah, blah, blah. And then I've actually got uh, an ex and a few male friends who have um, spoken to me about this and I've noticed these patterns where what's happened with them is they've been so afraid of like, like they've gone so far in the opposite direction in an attempt to not be like this unhealthy masculine. You know, they've usually, the, the people I'm thinking of have usually been brought up by like a really classic boomer, manly man, tough guy father, um, <laughs> probably sitting pretty solidly in his like immature masculine. Um, and then, yeah, these friends of mine and, and my ex have been really, um, really repelled by that and really didn't want to turn into that. Um, and to, in, in order to avoid being labeled toxic mask or to like, you know, try to make themselves like a very safe space for women they've completely neglected their masculine side and are only really comfortable now when they're sitting in their feminine which feels safer to them it feels more um, approachable um, to the people you know the women around them they don't actually have that many male friends um, because they feel more comfortable with women and so it's really interesting because like then and you know they, they wouldn't mind me sharing this like we've had lots of conversations about it and they're very aware of it um but they don't really have any idea how to embrace or embody a healthy masculine essence because they've just not had it role modelled. Um, and there is all of this like man-hating kind of, you know, sort of stuff going on in the new agey culture. And then although it's like really lovely to be such a sensitive, respectful and thoughtful like, you know, man and as a partner it was really beautiful I found it really hard to actually surrender into my own feminine because of them being so femme all the time. Um, and, you know, that meant that, like, they didn't take the lead, they didn't make decisions. I had to be the one that initiated and took initiative and, like, um, it meant that I was forced into my masculine way too much. And then you can imagine in the bedroom that showed up as well when I wasn't really able to surrender into my feminine and I didn't feel like they totally held me um, because they were uncomfortable being in their masculine. So I'm curious, is this something that you come up against or you have come up against personally when you were like trying to find a balance in your masculine and feminine? And 
do you like see this struggle and confusion of like the mixed expectations on men these days, like with your clients as well? Yeah, I, I, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that and, and for, um, speaking into it. There's, um, a lot that I want to say on this. And I guess the first thing is, um, to answer your immediate question is, yeah, I do notice that there is a, um, well, there has been a trend in like mainstream media to, um, to kind of go, here's what not to do. If you're a man, here's what you shouldn't be doing. You shouldn't mm. be sexually assaulting. You shouldn't be, uh, you know, content warning here. You shouldn't be raping, right? You shouldn't be doing this. This is how you shouldn't be expressing your sexuality, which is like, I get it. I get why we need to have those conversations. It's necessary to, to say, okay, here's what's, here's what, how we shouldn't behave. Mm-hmm. But what I don't see a lot of is the counter of that, which is, okay, well, if this is what we shouldn't do, well, here's how you can express your sexuality in a healthy way. Here's how you can mm. explore your desires. Here's how you can talk about your fantasies. Here's how you can, uh, if it's, you know, the whole spectrum, here's how you can flirt with someone. Here's how you can initiate a conversation with someone you find attractive. Like the the mainstream conversation has, has at least in the way that I've observed it, has has been quite like skewed negatively towards like, here's what you don't do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's why it's bad. And we haven't had the, in again, in the mainstream kind of context, we haven't had the other side of that conversation, which is, well, here's how you can. Here's what it looks like. Here's some models. Here's some mm. ways of expressing mm-hmm. it. And um, and so that's what that's the way that I've approached my work is to kind of be something or someone like that or talk about those things to be like, hey, here's how you can talk about your sexuality with a new partner. Or, hey, here's how you can be an embodied sexual man in the dating scene. Or here's how you can introduce the concept of mm. I, I don't know group sex or fantasies or desires with a person who you've just met. Like there's. There's ways of doing that that is respectful and and honors boundaries and you know is done in a in a healthy and although vulnerable way, um, mm-hmm. and so that's what I think is missing at the kind of collective mainstream level in terms of that yeah. whole um, yeah. cultural conversation. Um, me personally, I have never really noticed, and this might sound controversial, I've never really noticed the man bashing or the man hating, and whether it's because I don't look for it. Um, I think there's also like a uh, maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy story going on for people that, you know, have this story, oh, there's a man, there's man hating in, in society at the moment. And then they'll attract those types of stories into their life. Mm. They'll go, oh, I noticed this now, this is man bashing. Oh, this is now man bashing. I don't have that story. So, I don't see those articles or I don't read those stories or maybe they don't come across or maybe if I do come across them, I interpret them in a little bit of a different way. So, I haven't actually noticed that. I have noticed what I've just described is that conversation around like, okay, this is how we shouldn't behave as men and we're lacking this other conversation. That's the way I've perceived it, but I haven't really noticed the whole man hating, man bashing um, phenomenon. Um, That's my observation, I suppose. Um, So, what I have noticed with, what I have noticed with men is, is this is especially with the men that I've worked with, I'll caveat that. Um, And what I've noticed is like there's a, um, Almost like a desire to, to yes, to be masculine, but to like be um, masculine in a certain way. So, so, kind of similar to this idea of man box. And I think this is kind of that like man box culture um, remnants kind of filtering into this. You know, they've done some work. Maybe they're interested in progressive 
you know, views and they're, they're on the sexuality journey, but there's still these kind of old thought patterns and old ideas coming from this kind of man box culture that they've left, which kind of still tell them there's a certain way to be masculine. There's a certain way to show up in your masculine energy. And you used a couple of those words before, which is like, you know, making decisions and being a leader and kind of taking charge and, and making your partner surrender and making them drop into their feminine. We still kind of use quite rigid language to describe that. And so mm-hmm. my, my, um, like my opinion is like masculinity isn't a monolith, right? Like there is so much diversity and nuance in what masculinity means. And so when we're talking about masculinity, like my definition is there is kind of no definition of masculinity. There is a definition for assertiveness. There is a definition for uh, what it means to be in control and to take charge. There is a definition for you know, being a leader, but those things don't make like those things don't necessarily equate one to one directly with what it means to be masculine. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, like the the journey that I've been on, I suppose, with some clients and also with myself is to start using language a little bit more um, directly and intentionally. So, if someone's saying they want to be more masculine in the bedroom or they want to be more masculine sexually, I kind of go, okay, well, what do you actually mean by that? What are some things that you want to do more sexually? What does sex mean for you? And what are you trying to get out of it? When you say masculine, what does that actually mean for you? And so, some of them might say, I want to feel more uh, power in the bedroom or I want to feel more in control or some some say just I want to feel more present I want to feel more connected that's what it means to be masculine to them is to kind of hold that presence and that be that deeper more intimate connection with their partner and so that's what I use instead instead of kind of going oh I'm going to teach you how to be more masculine how to embody more masculine energy sexually because that that for me doesn't really necessarily mean anything masculinity is quite a broad term so quite an, an umbrella term and so, mm. I go, all right, well, if you want to work on your assertiveness, let's work on your assertiveness. Let's get clear on exactly what it is that you want to work on uh, and let's use descriptive language to, to talk about that as opposed to masculine energy, which like what what does that what does that kind of even mean? You know, it's quite a vague term um, mm. and it can be misinterpreted a lot of different ways, particularly when I've got a bunch of different clients. So, mm. um, so that's what I've that's what I've noticed with my clients. It's like they're yes, they they do want to be, quote unquote, more masculine sexually. But I, I try to like drill deeper into what that actually means for them because each individual person has their own understanding of what it means to be masculine and what makes them feel masculine as well. I do certain things that make me personally feel really masculine um, and that you know uh, fits my own description and definition of what masculinity means for me, but that might be totally different for someone else. And so, who am I to then say, hey, you need to do this particular thing because this is going to make you more masculine that's me then just imposing a different version of that man box, uh, you know, unspoken set of rules to this to this man. And if he doesn't do that thing, then I'm essentially saying to him, well, then you're not being masculine. And, and so, we're getting into the same idea as, as um, you know, that old paradigm of, of man box culture. So, that's a bit of a rant that I went on, but hopefully that kind of made sense as much as possible. Um, my, my takeaway from that is like, just get clear on language. That's my big thing is like, get clear on exactly what it is that you're trying to work on and let's work on that. Amazing. Yeah, I love that. I think so you made quite a few points that were really like clarifying for me and thought provoking. And that's really what I enjoy. I always enjoy reading your posts and um, listening to what you have to say, because you definitely think very deeply about these things and don't just accept the general consensus on, you know, like you kind of go underneath it all. And I don't know, I like the way your brain works. So it's always interesting to me. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's such, it's so true. Like everyone's version of what masculinity means for them or what makes them feel masculine is going to be different. I think like Tantra or Neo Tantra made these like masculine and feminine terms like super trendy and then like a catch all. But mm. you're so right. Like there is so many more descriptive ways to, um, to talk about it that, that isn't quite so, I guess, like clear cut and like, like binary. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. Um, and this might be like a bit of a, oh, I don't know, a controversial or triggering thing. I'm just going to speak <laughs> from my experience and clients who sure. have spoken to me, female clients, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I've found that as a bit of an unfortunate consequence of um, the pressure on men and, you know, sexuality, their sexual prowess and the fact that then it kind of gets wrapped up a little bit in their egos um, you know, this ability to please a sexual partner can be like what makes them feel either like a man or like a failure. Sometimes this is not everyone. Mm. Um, and then that will sometimes mean that like if they're not totally crushing it in the bedroom or if a partner tries to like speak up and offer a bit of feedback or a bit of guidance in the bedroom, that can, um, and, and I've sort of had this happen for, to me and I've spoken to lots of clients, um, who have had this happen. It, and, and it happens with, every gender i'm not saying like it's just men but i think there's just additional pressure on men in a particular way um they might react kind of poorly um because Mm -hmm. it sort of triggers insecurities that they already have around their manliness and their ability to be you know sexually um yeah so i guess then it kind of triggers them and they might react a bit poorly and then the partner often in my, like in my experience, at least it's like the woman in this equation will feel less inclined to speak up about their needs next time or like less inclined to give feedback or direction because they're worried that, you know, then it's going to be a boner killer, the guy's going to feel insecure or he's going to get too in his head or it'll basically just sort of ruin the mood and kind of the flow of things. And then this like Mm. vicious cycle is kind of perpetuated where, yeah, like, you know, the partner doesn't want to trigger them and then there's no actual communication and learning that can take place. And, like, yeah, I just feel like I don't even know what my question really is here. I just wanted to hear your <laughs> thoughts on on that. And, like, do you talk to men about this and, like, what would the advice be that you have um, for women or, like, lovers of men about how to approach giving guidance or feedback in the bedroom if that if there is a bit of, like, Mm, I guess insecurity that exists in it and it doesn't get received very well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for this question. And um, yeah, it's something I've noticed as well. And look, if it's the, if it's at the end of the day and I'm not feeling very compassionate and not very articulate, then I'll just say to a guy, fucking grow up, man, like, <laughs> like just cop it on the chin, man. You, you've, you know, you're not as good as you think you are. Like there's so much more that, you know, so if I'm feeling like less than compassionate, then I'll be pretty blunt about it and I'll just straight shoot with a guy and be like, look, man, you need to pull your head out of your ass. You, you know, you, you've got things to learn. Um, but if I'm feeling a bit more, you know, if I'm being a bit more compassionate and, and understanding and, um, you know, wanting to, to really help this guy on his journey a little bit more um, in a more nuanced way, then I'll, I'll talk about the idea that sex is a skill. Right, and there's this mm-hmm. narrative that men are supposed to be knowledgeable and know what they're doing when it comes to sex, and to that, that men are responsible for their partner's pleasure. Right, that that the onus is on the man to do the sex. Like what I was saying before, my own story, 
um, in you know uh, earlier part of my my life was like I'm the one that does the sex, I'm the one that initiates, I'm the one that pursues, I'm the one that does the does the thing, um, and that's a very strong like heterosexual heteronormative script there that the man mm. is active participant and the woman is the passive participant, um, but if that is the script, right, and and a lot of guys kind of have that script. I kind of say to them, well, okay, well, where did you learn sex? Like, who taught you? And they kind of go, well, no, no one really. Like, maybe I watched a bit of porn. They read some magazine articles. And it's like, well, well, sex is a skill, you know. It's kind of like swimming. We, we're born and we maybe there's like some inherent innate ability that we have when we're thrown into a pool or thrown into the ocean for us, us to flounder and keep ourselves afloat. Just like when we're kind of thrown into a sexual experience, there's some kind of like animalistic, innate kind of understanding of this goes in here and that's kind of what it's supposed to do. But, you know, to become a good swimmer, you've got to actually take lessons and you've got to practice and you've got to like learn how to do the strokes. You've got to learn how to keep yourself above water. You've got to learn how to breathe properly. You've got to learn what it's like to be in a body of water and how your body reacts to being in a body of water. Sex is exactly the same way. You've got to learn the strokes. You've got to learn the positions. You've got to learn the timing. You've got to learn the the um what it feels like to be in that experience how your body feels like in that experience like to get familiar with it and you know it it, although it's a skill there's a little bit of art to it there's a little bit of of talent that might be needed to to be a good swimmer right to kind of take things to the next level just same thing it might be to to be a good lover you know there's a little bit of talent there's a little bit of like mystery there's a little bit of like getting into that flow state there's a little bit of this kind of esotericism or this energy that's a part of it to to kind of take that that skill to uh, a next level. And so, if you're not taught any of that, like imagine learning how to swim by watching a video of someone doing really poor freestyle (laughs) and going, okay, I'm just going to do this and that's how I'm going to learn how to swim. That's exactly what we're kind of doing as young men when we watch porn. We're watching someone have one specific type of sex in a pretty shitty way. And then we're going, all right, cool, that's enough education for me. I'm going to go out and have sex and and that's that's all the, the skill building that I need to do. We're kind of approaching those two things in the in the same way. So my um my kind of conversation with them is like it's it's skill building essentially. And so how do you mm. build skills? You practice. You practice not only alone, right? And and one of the one of the things that I equate with the men that I work with is the way that you masturbate is the way that you generally have sex. Like mm. it will transpose the the methodology of your masturbation, the the way that you masturbate onto your sexual experiences with another person. So a, a quick example of this is like. If you're masturbating and you go straight for your genitals and you go straight for friction-based stimulation, right? And this is what a lot of guys do. They'll flick on the computer screen or they'll go onto their phone. They'll jump straight down to their cock. They'll have, you know, their phone in one hand or their mouse in one hand, their cock in the other, and then they'll just start masturbating away. They'll just start up and down, friction-based stimulation, no lube, no warm-up or anything like that. Then I ask them, Mm -hmm. okay, if that's the way that you masturbate, tell me how you have sex. And typically, they'll say the same thing. They'll go, okay, we go straight for penetration. We don't do any warm-up. There's no lube involved. It's just kind of in there and we start thrusting away and we go for it. And I'm like, do you see the correlation here between the way that you're conditioning yourself to experience pleasure alone and the way that then that transpires when you're with a partner? It's very, Mm. very similar. So, one of the ways that I get men to practice is by changing the way that they self-pleasure, by changing their experience of pleasure um, and by broadening it, I suppose, not necessarily changing Mm. it, but just expanding it. Um, And then that then helps them create the foundation for them doing that with a partner. They go, oh, look at all this stuff that I know about my own body now, about the fact that I can experience pleasure in my chest or my arms or my face or my ass or wherever it might be. 
I wonder if my partner can experience pleasure in those different ways as well. And what if I told my partner, hey, I actually like it when you touch my chest here and, and you know, this is something that's pleasurable to me. And so, it kind of invites them to have those those um, broader experiences of pleasure with their partner. Of course, there's a whole bunch of skill building in there with regards to communication. Um, but it's, it's yeah, the, the work that I do with men, I suppose, to kind of um, to to work on the question that you asked me um, is like how how to, to overcome that and how to kind of get past it is I talk to them about skill building and then I talk to them about self-pleasure. And then when, when that kind of chronological chronological order has taken place, then I'll start to talk to them about like, the discrepancy in in pleasure for for women right and and i work with a lot of heterosexual men so like i talk to them about like why don't we ask for what we want why are we um like if we don't ask for what we want what do we do instead as well like these are some questions from um uh sex therapist names uh, maria bashiski i believe um but i i can't remember her last name it's maria b uh, if people are interested mm-hmm. but she asked these two questions that's like part of a whole framework of of um sex therapy is like why don't we ask for what we want and what do we do instead and so this question why don't we ask for what we want well, it could be because of fear it could be because we're afraid that our partner is going to reject us it could be because we think our partner is going to um you know take it personally and get upset that we've asked for what we want and we've told them that we like this instead of that um and so these are these are a whole bunch of reasons why we don't ask. And so what do we do instead? Well, we we um, pretend that we don't have these desires and these fantasies, or we tolerate, right? we tolerate touch, or we we um, expect our partner to just know, or we try and do something to our partner in the hopes that they'll do it back to us. Uh, <laughs> and so we we do all these covert things, right? That um, that are, are substituting for what we really want, which is and and which is to, to ask for what we want. And so um, I, I talked to men about that and like, look, if you are wanting to have better sex, if you're wanting to like connect deeply with your partner, and a lot of these men are like, you know, they're they're invested in, they're interested in their partner's pleasure, but they're not really sure how to go about exploring that. Um, I mean, these are the men that work with me, I suppose. Uh, but I, I think in general, men are interested in, their partner's pleasure, but kind of in a warped way. They're kind of like the way that they're interested is like they're responsible for their partner's pleasure. And so Mm. there's this phenomenon happening of like men putting pressure on their partners to experience orgasm because Mm -hmm. these guys kind of value or evaluate their own masculinity by the amount of pleasure that the partner has. And so Mm -hmm. because that, like, as you were saying, that kind of ego is tied up in it, a lot Mm -hmm. of women kind of feel this pressure to pretend that they're experiencing a lot of pleasure when mm-hmm. they might ne- not necessarily um, experience that. <laughs> to kind of validate their partner's ego, to make their partner not feel so bad, um, mm-hmm. to kind of to, to protect their partner because these women also care about their partners. Um, and so I think there's, because of that lack of communication and that breakdown of like asking for what it is that we want and talking about things and communicating, we get that phenomenon happening of like, guys thinking that they're great lovers um and their masculinity and ego kind of wrapped up in that and and thinking that you know they're doing this for their partner because that's the way it's supposed to be uh and women going oh i want to protect my partner and protect his ego i care for for him um and so i'm just going to go along here and 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 then (laughs) over time that's how you know shitty sex and and relationships kind of happen i suppose Mm. so uh so there's 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 steps right there's there's levels to this and and hopefully that was Mm. something that kind of was made clear as like I start 
I start at one spot and then I kind of build up from there. I don't just throw them straight into the deep end unless I'm feeling, like I said, not very compassionate and it's been a long day. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, love that. And it is, I mean, I feel like people often come in thinking it's going to be a quick fix or some kind of magic bullet or like just a simple answer to their, you know, their challenges and it's like nah dude you gotta do the work there there are steps to this there is like a lot of self-reflection and inquiry that's got to go on it's like your own self-work and then there's the work between the two of you and yeah it's a whole thing um so I'm, i'm so glad and relieved there's people like you doing this work um i feel like i'm kind of doing it on the on the female side and you're doing it on the male side um so before I launch into a new sort of line of questioning, I want to chat about like, um, yeah, I guess issues with or challenges with erection and premature ejaculation. I know you get a lot of um, questions about that. But before that, are you ready for the segment Get Pregnant and Die? Don't have sex because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So pretty much I'm just going to – I'm asking all of my guests, how did your sex education fail you? Do you have a story about how it failed you or just something you would have loved to have learned more about? Um, yeah, just lay it on me. Right. So um, when I went to university, I uh, I went to university in America, so I'll caveat that. And, and more specifically, I went to university in the southern states of America, in Georgia um, to mm. be specific. And mm-hmm. – so, the, the university that I went to, I was studying psychology and I took what is called um, a Christian Approaches to Human Sexuality class as part of my psychology degree. Whoa. And so, as you can imagine, it was <laughs> quite, um, it was very, it was, it was obviously Christian, but it was quite fundamentalist and, and conservative Christian as well. So, um, premarital sex was a sin, uh, masturbation was a sin contraception was not talked about at all um homosexuality of course was a sin uh there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of like just misinformation about sexual expression and and human sexuality and um and so that was one of only two classes that i remember in my whole entire primary high school and undergraduate degree that was about sexuality so that's like what 15, well, oh, yeah, maybe 15 plus years of, of schooling, I suppose, um, if we're kind of going from um, high school, that was um, like there was only two classes and one of them was Christian Approaches. The other one was a uh, class that I had in high school that was um, delivered by my PE teacher who I feel like drew the short straw and um, he <laughs> threw on a video for our class. I went to an all-boys school as well, mind you. So, this was like... This random video from like the 1980s of like adults <laughs> pretending to be teenagers and uh, and my my PE teacher just like not knowing at all didn't uh, didn't didn't invite any questions it's just so, it was just lacking right so it was just like a lot of um, there's a lot of shame as well there about sexuality as you know a bunch of um, horny young men we wanted to talk about it um, we were kind of shut down there as well so my um, experience of sex ed has been at that kind of like schooling level has been very um shame oriented very sex negative very pleasure negative so my wish 
And um, my hope for kind of future generations is for that not to be the case, I suppose, is for mm. for sex education to be a lot more comprehensive, to be a lot more pleasure positive, excuse me, mm. to be a lot more sex positive. And, um, and yeah, I had to, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't really take any of it on board. I was very, um, I still kind of am, uh, but I was very anti, anti-religion at the time of going to university. So, I didn't really pay too much attention to the Christian approaches, the sex ed class. Um, but yeah, it was just just kind of zooming out a little bit and just like thinking back to some of the stuff that was said. I just can't believe that there was young people in that community that w- were kind of taking that seriously and were thinking this yeah. is how I've got to live my life. And so, um, yeah. it's a little bit sad actually to think, to think back mm-hmm. on it. And I, I, I mean, I could speak about this for a long time, but just being <laughs> in that community for a couple of years was actually one of the light bulb re- moments that I had for wanting to do sexuality work to go from psychology into, into human sexuality. Uh, was just spending time in that community in in Georgia. Wow, so interesting. Yeah, it really it breaks my heart. It's just really it's scary and it's sad that yeah, that's even still being offered to you know young youth um, and people are like taking that as gospel and all. I mean, it's all they've got to go off. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, religion's a whole other kettle of fish, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for that share. I want to ask a bit about, um, so I, I was going to say erectile dysfunction because that's generally what it's just labelled, but I also, mm. yeah, I've, I've sort of heard you speak on this and how you're kind of rejecting that term dysfunction, so I'd love you to speak a bit about that. And then also just, um, I guess, how, what can, like, a woman or a sexual partner of a man who's experiencing some challenges with keeping an erection or getting an erection or whatever, like how should they handle it? Because I've, I mean, it seems like a no brainer to me, but I have just heard some horror stories that just made me want to cry. And um, I mean, for example, I was with this one guy and he was having some trouble keeping an erection and getting really bummed about it. And I was like, so chill. I was just like, dude, it's so fine. Like no biggie. But he was freaking out and he told me that he was with this woman once and he went went home with her and then had some issues. I think it must have been like a one-night stand situation and then she just ended up telling him to leave, being like, oh, what are you good for then? And so and then, and then mm. ever since he obviously had extra, extra, um, like so many challenges with it and that's just so fucked up and damaging and i can't believe like a human would do that to another human but um yeah so it kind of want it prompts me i guess especially because so many of my listeners are heterosexual females prompts me to ask like how can a sexual partner of a man experiencing challenges handle it in the best way possible um and yeah also the dysfunction thing it's like a two part question yeah cool cool um so these are two massive questions as well, yeah. so, and I'm just mindful of not speaking for so long. So I'm going to try and uh, dial these in. Um, cool. So uh, there's a, a sex uh, therapist whose name is Chris Donahue, and he talks about the difference between erectile dysfunction and erectile disappointment. And what I really resonate with this distinction is erectile dysfunction is a clinical term. It's something that we use to diagnose a clinical disorder that someone's having, right? It's it's found in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual. It's found in the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, um, which is used in clinical settings, right? And so, uh, a lot of the men that come to me with quote-unquote erectile dysfunction concerns 
really actually can't be clinically diagnosed with erectile dysfunction. They, they don't meet the clinical requirements, the criteria to be diagnosed with a dysfunction or with a distort, disorder. Um, but because we've, and this is, okay, so this is why I've said I, I could speak around this for a long time. I don't tell myself in. It's because there's a long history of pathologizing and medicalizing sexuality, but particularly male sexuality, right? And this is, we can speak about Viagra and Big Pharma and the kind of, you know, uh, pharmacological approach to human sexuality and the way that we've kind of, you know, there's a, there's a pill for everything now. If you've got low libido, there's a pill. If you've got erectile issues, there's a pill for this. If you've got premature ejaculation, there's a pill for this. So, um, so that approach, like that medicalization, that pathologizing of male sexuality has filtered down now into like everyday language. And so we've got men that are labeling themselves with erectile dysfunction when they actually don't meet the criteria for that. Mm. So, um, and, and, and language, again, I've, I've said this before, language is really important. So if we've got men that are labeling themselves as dysfunctional and that's the way that they interact mm. with and relate to their sexuality and their anatomy, then it's going to perpetuate that kind of that issue. Totally. It's the same thing with the, the, the label addiction as well. It's, I, I get a lot of people labeling themselves as porn addicts when, again, addiction is a very clinical um, diagnosis is clinical terminology. And so if you're self-labeling yourself as an addict, like it's important to be, be like really clear on, well, you, you're not actually an addict. You, you've, you know, got a unhealthy relationship with pornography, just like these guys are having some difficulties with their erections, but it's not, we've got to be clear here on, on you're not being diagnosed with anything. And so that's really important to, to mm. empower people, right. To empower, yeah, totally. um, to empower my clients. Um, and so the, the distinction that Chris Donahue makes is erectile disappointment where, um, you're experiencing some some uh, disappointment with regards to either getting or maintaining an erection. And it could be, you know, something that happens in certain situations. Or it could be something that's happened a couple of times and you're a bit, um, you're a bit worried about it. You're anxious about it and you're not sure what to do about it. The, the, the work there is managing expectations. Like what do we expect mm-hmm. a penis to do? Right. And, and so a lot of us expect penises to behave like dildos essentially mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. be instantaneously erect and to stay erect at a specific firmness for a certain amount of time until there's an ejaculation and they, they go through degemescence and they, and they become flaccid again. And like that is a story that's perpetuated in porn. I just put up on my social media the other day. Like when was the last time you saw a flaccid penis in mainstream pornography? You know, I don't know if people that are listening have watched mainstream porn before, but like the guy's cock is already hard at the beginning of the scene. It, it bounces out of his trousers, um, already fully erect. And then you don't even see it flaccid throughout the whole thing. And there's, you know, anytime it is flaccid, the, the scene is changed or the scene's cut. It's edited to make it look like he never goes flaccid. And so we have this expectation then around yeah. penises that they're supposed to be instantaneously erect and they're supposed to stay erect for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. When, fluctuation in tumescence or firmness is really natural and really common for mm-hmm. um, for people that have penises. And you know, even on like Viagra warning labels, it says if you've got an erection for more than four hours, you're, you know, you're like you seek medical intervention because it's not natural. It's not normal to have an erection for, for that long um, mm-hmm. because fluctuations in firmness is, is really natural and really common and very normal. And so it's like, okay, how do we navigate that then? Well, the first thing is like, doing what I've just done is educating around expectations and managing those things. Um, but also talking about the fact that like a, a, a flaccid penis has the same amount of nerve endings in it as an erect penis does. And so therefore can feel the same amount of pleasure that an erect mm. penis has. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, I talk about this um, in a couple of um, things on social media is like the fear of flaccid penises. 
right? Because we don't know what to do with them. There's no mm. education. Every time you see like a, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as well. It's like every time you see a um, demonstration of like a new uh, masturbation technique or a new hand job or blow job technique, it's on an erect penis, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're never really told like, hey, here's what you can do with a flaccid cock. Here's how they can experience pleasure. Here's what you can Here's how you can stimulate them. Here's how you can, you know, you can still have penetrative sex with a flaccid penis. It's called soft entry. There's so many things that you can do with a flaccid penis that we aren't taught about. Mm. And so then we have this story, which is what this, um, what you've just shared, was, which, which is this, you know, reaction of like, oh, if he doesn't have an erection, what the fuck is he good for? Right? We're, yeah. We've reduced. Or like, a lot oh, what's wrong with me? Why isn't he attracted penises. to me? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's another big story as well. If he doesn't yeah. have an erection, what does it mean about me? Is like, am I not attractive enough? Right? Have I not done the thing that he likes? Does he mm. not? Is he not interested? Right? We've equated mm. erections with arousal as well. That's another thing that we we need to speak about is this mm-hmm. arousal non concordance, um, mm-hmm. which is this idea that you can be subjectively aroused, but your body just hasn't caught up yet, or vice versa. You can have an erection. A lot of men wake up in the morning with morning erections. Doesn't mean they're turned on. That's just their body reacting to mm. certain stimulus or a surge in hormones or whatever it might be. So, there's this um, you know, discrepancy there between subjective or mental arousal and physical arousal as well that we need to be mindful of. And that that's a, that's a slippery slope because that gets down into things like, uh, I mean, again, content warning here, for, for men that have been sexually assaulted or men that have been raped is, you know, they weren't, obviously, it was sexual assault, so they weren't mentally turned on. They weren't subjectively aroused by it, but mm. their body had the physical response to it and so, there's a lot of, um, when we look at the the kind of qualitative research that's done into this, it's a lot of male victims of sexual assault that feel really betrayed by their bodies because they yeah. had an erection and then they also got stimulated to the point of ejaculation. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of, because of our society's approach to male sexuality, they, they kind of have this idea that they enjoyed it, that they yeah. they must have liked it because they had an erection and they they ejaculated. So, there's a there's a conversation there that's really important to have. Mm. Uh, so that all that is to say, all that is to say is like if there is a a situation, a scenario where, uh, so the women that are listening that maybe have male partners, uh, if he does go soft, know that it's not necessarily about you, right? That's the first thing is don't necessarily take it personally. It's something that might be going on for him internally, and oftentimes when I've spoken to guys, they're usually quite turned on by their by their female partners, by the women that they're having sex with, but they're anxious and they're worried about like having to perform or they're worried about what their body looks like. A lot of guys have body issues as well, body insecurity issues. Um, mm. And so, like that getting in their head, that anxiety that's happening is is killing their erection, right? If we look at this physiologically or neurologically, you've got to be in your parasympathetic nervous system in order to get engorgement, right? In order for the blood flow down into the penis and also this is true for vulvas as well in order for engorgement of the clitoris and the vulva you've got to be relaxed you can't be anxious and stressed out that's not that's not conducive for engorgement um it's it's a response of the parasympathetic nervous system so if guys are anxious and are in their head and are stressed out about what their sex looks like or whether their penis is big enough or whether they're going to be a good sexual partner or whatever it might be then they're, you know, neurologically, physiologically speaking, not going to be able to get an erection. So, Mm. a very simple, simple strategy, exactly like what you were saying is slow down, tell them it's not a big deal, like create that, like we talk talk about a lot of ways for men to create safety for women, right, in heterosexual contexts. This is one of the ways that women can create safety for men in in these heterosexual contexts is like it's not a big deal. 
when mm. he doesn't have an erection. Sure, it might be a little bit disappointing, but there's other things that you can do sexually. You've got fingers, you've got tongues, you've got toys, you've got uh, body parts. Like there's there's so many other things that you can do sexually, but we place this reliance on the penis, right? That that the only way that a man can give pleasure to a woman is with his penis, right? That's kind mm. of the way that we framed a lot of heterosexual sex. The, the yeah. terminology for that is, is phallocentrism. Um, mm. So, like educating about how you can have sex in a whole bunch of different ways that don't involve a penis. In fact, one of the strategies that I give to guys that are maybe experiencing some erection issues is I say, have, you know, set up, set aside time to have sex with your partner, talk to them about it, but take penetration off the table, mm. right? So, we're going to have sex, we're going to explore our bodies, we're going to be sexual with one another, but there's not going to be any penile vaginal penetration, there's not going to be any intercourse, that's taken off the table intentionally, mindfully and consciously, right? Together, they make the decision, we're going to take penetration off the table and that kind of forces you in a way to go, oh, what else What else is there? What else can we do? How else can we explore each other's bodies? How else can we experience pleasure with one another, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it takes the pressure off. A lot of times guys notice that when they explicitly make the decision with their partner to take penetration off the table, they're a lot more relaxed and they oftentimes find that they have an erection. And, um, yeah. and, and you know, I say to them, look, they stay strong even though you've got the erection. The, the decision was made and here's where I, I talk to them about like, integrity and creating boundaries and, and holding space right one of the one of the things about being a space holder as a you know as a sexual partner is like if you make an agreement on something don't backtrack on that agreement if you've set the intention in the agreement to not have penetrative sex but then because you're relaxed and you're into it and you're feeling pleasure you get an erection and then in the moment you go oh maybe we should have penetrative sex because i got an erection that's you going back on boundaries that's you going back on an agreement and it and it even though it sounds like it's the right thing to do it actually erodes trust it erodes that that um the parameters that you've created so uh so that's that's a very simple strategy if you and your partner are experiencing some sort of erection issues is to create a space where you can explore each other's bodies where mindfully you've taken that penetrative sex off the table um because it's all about pleasure and and we want to focus on pleasure and, and pleasure doesn't exclusively come from penetrative sex Totally, totally. I I offer that as a suggestion to my clients all the time as well. Um, taking penetrative sex just off the table for exactly those reasons, and it has the same effect on the women. You know, maybe they're they're having um, uh, challenges with libido, or they feel like you know they're never really horny, or they don't want to have sex, they don't feel ready for penetration. And I'm like, well, imagine if the pressure or expectation of it just wasn't there at all. And then that that actually allows them to feel enough sort of like safety and relaxation um, that they do end up getting turned on and actually wanting penetration. But, yeah, I love what you said about keeping that container, keeping those boundaries in place um, because, you know, what's it worth if you just keep going going back on it? Um, it won't feel as safe next time, you know. So love that. Sorry to be asking you such hard-hitting questions when we're sort of like <laughs> running out of time. I'm I'm good to go a bit over. I just want to check in with you, like what's your time limit on this because I just I, I tend to do pretty long-form interviews and I've got a few, couple more questions, <laughs> but I want to respect your boundaries. So like where are you at with time? Yeah, cool. Um, I could probably go for another 20 minutes. All right, sick. Well, perfect. I'm going to do the segment TMI. We love it. And then I'm going to chuck in a couple of questions about premature ejaculation. And I just want to get like a male's perspective on a few things while I've got you here because I know that that's what my listeners want to hear. Um, but yeah, awesome. you ready for TMI? Let's do it. TMI, we 
So as you may know, TMI, I think it's just a fucking bullshit concept. I think it's perpetuating, you know, the stigma and the shame and the taboo around bodies and sex and the messiness and the beauty of it all. So I've relabeled it too much inspiration and I'm asking my guests for a story that would usually be, yeah, considered a little bit too much to share in uh, in a public or like sort of, yeah, a conversation <laughs> like this. So do you have a TMI story that you're happy to share with us, Cam? Yeah, I do. This is a, I feel like this is a doozy and something that I've definitely not heard spoken about um, publicly. <laughs> yes! I haven't spoken about it publicly very often. So I think this is going to be um, a good one, um, I hope. Uh, so um, so my my partner and I, my, my partner Edwina, um, my fiance, I suppose, um, we, uh, there was a period of time early on in our relationship where I had scheduled a trip to go um, traveling. I actually went to India. Uh, for about five weeks and um, my trip to India was um, in, amongst other things part of it was to explore celibacy uh, so I, I was celibate for five weeks um, you know intentional celibacy and the um, the experience that I had with my partner when I came back was uh, you know I hadn't done any part of my celibacy was no masturbation no self-pleasuring obviously no sex um, so when I came back to um, my partner and we we started having sex again the first time that we did um i actually and this is going to be painful for people listening i actually tore my frenulum i actually oh. tore my my banjo string so people <laughs> that that are interested in the slang um and so and so there was and there was quite a bit of blood um mm. because it's it, the 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 blood vessels are very close to the surface there so uh, and it was fucking painful as well. It hurt. Um, and uh, I'm not very good with blood as well. So, like, <laughs> I could never be a surgeon or I could never go into the medical profession because I don't do well with blood. And so, I got really faint and I actually ended up passing out um, very briefly um, from this. And it and my lovely partner, Edwina, um, is very early on in our relationship as well, it's, mind you, it's like within the first year. And... Um, and she had no idea what the fuck was going on. She thought I had like done some serious, serious damage and that I was, and the fact that I passed out as well freaked her out so much. Um, and so I eventually came to, it was only a couple of seconds, but I came to and it was very pale, had to get some water into me, had to kind of stop the bleeding. Um, and, and, and yeah, kind of like deal with this torn, um, part of my penis. For people that are familiar with the, the anatomy of the penis, the, the frenulum is that, that part of the, Kind of part of the foreskin, the skin that attaches the the head of the penis on the underside to the um to the shaft, and so that 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 broke, and um and yeah, so I've, so like there there was the healing process of that, and we had to take it really slow anytime we wanted to be sexual after that, but it was um it was about a month or so later uh, where I thought I'd fully healed, I thought it was fine, oh, maybe God. it was less than a month, um, but I did I did it again, I did it ah! twice. I, um, I tore it again <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it was just too, too, yeah, too vigorous, too, yeah, too, too soon. Um, and yeah, so now, and so now there's like a, there's like a tiny little bit of scar tissue, but it's not noticeable and it, and it doesn't affect my, my self-pleasure or sex in any way. And oh, yeah, good. it was just, just one of those things, one of those things at the beginning of our relationship and obviously we're five years strong now, so it hasn't impacted us at all, but it was, yeah, very uh, traumatic at the time for both of us actually. <laughs> 
Oh my God, that was a doozy. I'm so stoked you talked about that because I've actually heard of that happening a <laughs> no lot. I think it happens more yeah. commonly than people realize. I've heard of lots of guys I think so as well. having that happen. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, yeah. I've so heard I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it maybe I'll make it publicize it and uh, <laughs> and see if people if it if it does happen more than we think. Yeah, you should. You should put it out to your community. I bet I bet you'll get heaps of responses because I mean I've heard of it happening at least five five different people I can think of right now. Um and yeah, it sounds pretty fucked. Sounds traumatic, sounds very bloody, because obviously you've already got like a, yeah. a like pumping fire hose with all of the erectile tissue full of blood. Yep, all the blood's already there. <laughs> yep, it's ready to go. <laughs> yeah. It's oh, not pretty, God. that's for sure. <laughs> Fab, thanks for sharing that. I'm glad you've all healed up okay now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for allowing me to share it. Yeah, oh no problem. I live for this shit. Um so <laughs> let's chat uh, premature ejaculation it's a common one I bet you get um, approached by men a lot with uh, some struggles in this in this department uh, maybe just talk a bit about some strategy and I know it's a huge topic so I'm sorry I'm sorry just like yeah just briefly talk on this thing that's like your entire <laughs> life's work um, but yeah what are some great strategies for a man that's dealing with this and then second part to the question because I'm good for it how can a partner support him through this as well? So, like, we come at it from both sides here. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, I'll, uh, I recognize that I said I was going to be brief with the erectile dysfunction and I was not, so I'll <laughs> endeavor to be brief here. Um, so, I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question directly. So, some things you can do with premature ejaculation um, and, and, and really, again, being mindful of language here, it's probably not premature ejaculation. You probably can't be clinically diagnosed with it. You are probably just experiencing ejaculating quicker than you would like. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not lasting as long as you would like. So, some things you can do here is firstly, understand how prem- how ejaculation works, I suppose, which is that it's a function of the sympathetic nervous system, which, uh, and again, if you remember before, I was saying erection is parasympathetic. So, engorgement is parasympathetic. Ejaculation is sympathetic nervous system, you know, our stress response, our survival response. Ejaculation is a survival mechanism. Uh, and so, sexual arousal and the sexual experience is this beautiful interplay between those two branches of the nervous system. So, now that you know that ejaculation is part of the sympathetic nervous system, it's a, it's a function of the sympathetic nervous system, what are some things that trigger our sympathetic nervous system? What are some things that put us into our fight or flight response, right? What are the manifestations of that? What's well, elevated heart rate? It is tension and tightness in the body. It's that clenching. It is uh, maybe the elevated temperature. It's quickened breathing, shallow breathing, uh, all those things. And if you look at, you know, when you ejaculate, if I get guys to to pay attention to what they're doing when they ejaculate, very often they're doing those things. They're tightening up, they're squeezing, they're pushing, they're holding their breath, they're clenching, they're trying to, um, well, maybe not trying to, but their body is having this kind of like intense uh, peak experience. All those characteristics are similar to, I hate to say it, are similar to a panic attack. And Ooh. so, if you're having a panic attack, some of the things that you do is you clench, uh, clench up and you tense and you squeeze and you hold your breath and your heart rate goes up, your temperature goes up because a panic attack is also a, a symptom of like hyperarousal essentially and it's part of you. It's a, it's a um, manifestation of your sympathetic nervous system being mm. activated. So, ejaculation is essentially a pleasurable panic attack right um and the and so the the things we can do very practical things we can do is all those things i just listed then is do the opposite of those things so if you're Mm -hmm. noticing you're ejaculating quite quickly 
think of those things that that are you know the cluster of characteristics that are representative of an ejaculation those sympathetic nervous system activations do the opposite of those things and mm. what that means practically is instead of breathing quickly and shallowly breathe slowly and deeply instead of tensing up and squeezing and pushing and clenching try and relax as much as possible try and let go of the tension in your body try and surrender a little bit more into the experience instead of like speeding things up and maybe the heart rate increasing because of that try slowing things down try slowing your touch down try slowing your like i said your breathing down and and allow the heart rate to slow down because of that um so essentially the 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 practice here is taking your time taking your time to really slow down rather than go from zero to ten quite quickly a lot of guys are going like from from zero to ten zero being no arousal ten being ejaculation they go from zero to ten in like the blink of a blink of an eye right some guys um mm. and so they breeze past like six seven eight nine 9.1 9.2 9.3 and they, they're not aware of all these levels of arousal so by slowing down i also then say pay attention to where you're at as well like track your level of arousal are you at a six are you at a seven are you at an eight can you stay at an eight for a little while you know what do you do when you're at an, at, at an eight do you have to slow your stroking down? Do you have to stroke a certain part of your penis? Typically, the head of the penis is the most sensitive, particularly the corona, which is the raised, ridged area around the head, and the frenulum. It's also quite sensitive. So, mm. can you switch the way that you're stimulating the penis um, up so that you're stimulating maybe a bit more of the shaft or you're stimulating a bit more of the perineum and the testicles? Still pleasurable. We're still kind of keeping that arousal going, but it's not pushing you over the edge. Um, mm. and so there's an, there's an edging practice here as well for, for men that are self-pleasuring is like keeping yourself in that heightened state of arousal so that your body also gets used to it as well. A lot of the times, one of the reasons why men ejaculate quite quickly is because when they get to that heightened state of arousal, when they are experiencing a lot of pleasure in their body, they don't know how to contain it. They don't know how to, to deal with it. Their body's not very used to it because they just blast through it and they go straight to ejaculation. So mm practicing or familiarizing yourself with that heightened state of arousal spending a longer period of time in there when you're self-pleasuring can also be beneficial for when you're with a partner mm. um that's another practical strategy if you're a, if you're a uh, partner if if your partner is the one that's experiencing premature ejaculation so if if you're a woman listening to this or if you're um if you're just a person who has a partner who is experiencing ejaculating quite quickly some of the things that you can do is essentially what i've just said slow them down invite them to breathe right? So maybe place your hand on their chest or on their diaphragm, just get them to slow down. Um, if they're like um, quite tense and quite relax, uh, quite, sorry, quite tense and quite um, tight in their body, see if you can get them to relax, see if you can get them to, to um, release some of that tension as much as possible. Um, if you're like this, and so this requires a little bit of communication. If you're like in the midst of penetrative sex as well, something to be mindful of is There'll be certain positions and certain angles for your partner who's got a penis that are more stimulating for him um, and also positions and angles and, you know, um, other, you know, things that you can do which are less stimulating for him as well. So, I encourage people that have penises and the men that I work with to explore that by themselves. Like, I get them to invest in a fleshlight, for example, and play around with different positions and angles and learn about well, if I'm in this position and this angle, that's really stimulating for me. That's going to make me come really quick. Or if I'm in this position, uh, I know that that's actually not that stimulating and I can go for a little bit longer and I can maybe do some some more practices. I can practice my breathing here. So, if you're, if you're a woman and you're having penetrative sex with your male partner, 
check in with him. Be like, hey, is this a really stimulating position for you? That could be with you on top, for example. A lot of guys find that really stimulating. It could be um, with, uh, could be in doggy style. A lot of guys find that really stimulating. It's quite individual and unique to each each guy. Um, but play around with positions. There'll there'll most likely be a position that is less stimulating for him. Um, and what I often find is like once you once I say you as a as a person with a penis, once a guy is kind of over the first three minute hurdle, I suppose. A lot of guys go from zero to a hundred within the first three minutes. Like they, they kind of get really aroused really quickly. Um, once they get over that kind of first three minutes, then they settle into their body. They kind of settle into the rhythm. They kind of settle into the energy of the experience and they're able to last longer after that. So for those first three minutes, tune in with him be like, okay, is this too much? Like, do we need to slow down here? Can we kind of get into a position that's maybe not so stimulating on his penis. And then once those first three minutes are, are kind of, you know, settled and, and the hurdles kind of been overcome, you probably notice a little bit of a shift in his energy and he'll settle down a little bit more into the experience. That's, that's usually what I find when I work with, with men and couples. Um, but um, some other things to do, I mean, I mean, sex doesn't have to finish with an ejaculation. You know what I mean? Mm. Like here's another simple thing you could do is like if he comes in three minutes, just keep the pleasure going for another 15. He's usually probably going to be able to go again, um, mm. you know, in 15 minutes time because the refractory period is only an average of about 15 minutes. So if you can just use some toys during that time, if you can keep on kissing and hugging and getting the pleasure kind of maintained throughout that refractory period, he might be able to go again the second time um, and usually last longer the second time around as well. So that's also a pretty straightforward, simple strategy to do as well as like, don't worry about the first ejaculation, just keep going until the second one comes. Totally, totally. Yeah, I love that. And and it is definitely something I've noticed um, as well, like once they're over that hurdle and I find like the longer you um, fool around with like all the foreplay stuff and like being in that heightened state of arousal before you even have penetrative sex, the longer they're going to be able to last. And it seems counterintuitive and I mean it would be individual for everyone but like initially I was surprised by this when an ex-partner of mine told me like, yeah, actually the longer we do foreplay things before we have the like dick in vag, I it's I find it easier to last longer and I was like oh that's strange I feel like there would have been even more of a build-up so by the time we do finally have sex you're just like ready to explode but that that makes sense um you know coming from what you've just said about like once you get past that hurdle and also you know expanding your pleasure threshold and how much arousal and pleasure you can actually like handle and hold in your body before spilling over if you're just sort of drawing it out longer and longer with foreplay, with your own mm, self-pleasuring yeah, practice, yeah, it's going to have a great yeah, effect. There's, a, there's an analogy here that was given to me by uh, a teacher of mine. His name is Nick Spadaccini, and mm. um, he talks about like the human body being like a sponge, really. And um, just like a sponge soaks up water, our bodies soak up arousal really well. Mm. And so, when a sponge is fully like soaked, full of water, um, what happens when we try and pour more water onto that? The sponge can't mm. handle it, and so the sponge leaks, right? And and so our body does the same thing. When our body is full of arousal, and arousal here means the characteristics of arousal, which is tension in the body, elevated heart rate, sympathetic nervous system activation, doesn't necessarily mean erotic arousal. Um, but when we try and pour more arousal into our body, right, from the sexual encounter that we're having, we're usually already quote unquote waterlogged, right? Like the sponges, mm. we're, we're arousal logged, you know, in our body. 
And so we can't hold any more arousal. And so we end up spilling, right? And what does that spilling look like? It looks like an ejaculation for, I mean, mm. people in male bodies. Um, and so what do we do with the sponge? If we want to pour more water onto it is we wring the sponge out, right? We, we squeeze all the water out. We have to do a similar thing with our body before sex is we wring the body out of its arousal or we, we lower the arousal. We, lo- we, and the way we do that is like by breathing, by stretching, by relaxing, by releasing the tension, by stepping into our parasympathetic nervous system as much as possible, by lowering that arousal so that when we do pour water onto the sponge, we do pour arousal into our body, we're starting from like the, we're starting from the, the baseline, right? We're not starting mm-hmm. from already being filled up. Um, and mm-hmm. so we can, f- and, and the trick is we, pour slowly so that we notice that slow, subtle, nuanced buildup of pleasure um, until we reach our peak eventually. Uh, mm. And then we we, um, we end up uh, ejaculating. So, that's an analogy that I've, I've used quite a lot with, with the love guys that I work that. with. Love that. Yeah, love that. That's great. That's an awesome way to look at it. Um, yeah, I think we need to normalize having like little mini yoga breaks in between fucking, you know, just like just bring us back yeah, into totally. the sympathetic. <laughs> Uh, all right. So one last question just before we wrap up, because I'm mindful of time, um, even though I, you know, we could both talk about this forever. Um, <laughs> I'd love to get a, a man's perspective, like a heterosexual man's perspective, um, just because, I don't know, I, it's pretty old fashioned, but I do hear a lot still from clients like they don't seem to believe me um, that men I mean, it's almost like there's this assumption that men don't care as much about like intimacy or love or emotions or connection when it comes to sex. It's very much like, because there is still that kind of or any holes a goal narrative bopping around. Um, yeah, I mean, it's maybe it's only coming from women who have just unfortunately for them been with those sorts of like old school repressed um, men. But I just want to set the record straight for listeners. Um, by asking a man, like, who talks to countless other men about this stuff, like, what are some of the things that men really yearn for and need and want from a partner, like, even whether it's in a casual sexual situation or in a relationship? Yeah, right. So, um, uh, so there, there's truth to that experience, right? To, like, it's the reason why women are saying it, right? It's because they've mm. had that experience of, like, men not attaching any emotions to sex or, or mm. whatever it might be. And so the and so we can't discount that that's you know, yeah. happening. So so I'm interested in like, okay, well, why is that happening? Why is that a story? And so one of the things that I've kind of noticed is the um so the avenue for men to experience intimacy and vulnerability in our society is very limited, right? It, it's it's kind mm. of expanding and broadening. But for the most part, especially a lot of these um, men from like kind of older generation, yeah. it wasn't and it still kind of isn't encouraged to like express your emotions or to really be physically intimate with other people, right? Like, you mm. you, you know, the very stereotypical here is like you don't hug, uh, you know, you, you don't uh, touch, you're not physically affectionate with your male friends, uh, you're only physically affectionate with with the women that you sleep with essentially, right? Um and so, oftentimes, the only avenue for men to experience that intimacy, that physical, emotional, vulnerable intimacy is with sex. It's kind of the only acceptable avenue for them to yeah. experience that. They don't go and hug their mates. They aren't, like, you know, physically affectionate with their friends. Like, it's it's 
you know, whatever considered gay, it's considered pussy, mm. like whatever, right? All that man box stuff we were talking about at the beginning of this um, yeah. conversation. Um, and so, a lot of guys then, without really knowing it, kind of get their physical needs met, their physical intimacy needs met by pursuing sex. Um, but because there's this narrative of like, uh, you know, men aren't supposed to feel their emotions, they aren't supposed to um, you know, express their emotions, they aren't supposed to talk about things, They're, and sex is just like no strings attached for them. A lot of guys have this um, like really uh, misaligned or disconnected experience of sex where it's actually meeting a core need that they have, which is like mm. that physical intimacy, but they're treating it as if, as if it isn't. And so, a lot of guys have this really disconnected relationship with the sex that they're having. And then, because of that, also a really disconnected relationship with the people they're having sex with, mm. right? Because they're not acknowledging that this is actually fulfilling a deep need that they have and deep desire. Um, mm. And so, it's one of the reasons why guys in the kind of mainstream context have quite a distorted relationship with sexuality in general. It's because it, it meets this really strong need that they have for physical intimacy and physical affection, but they don't acknowledge that and they're kind of told not to acknowledge that. They're kind of told, no, nah, mm. you, you guys just want to fuck. And so, the guys go, yeah, well, I just want to fuck. But the reason why they just want to fuck is because that's the only avenue that they have for that physical intimacy. And so, yeah. they, they're kind of um, they're creating this, this really um, like downward spiral, I suppose, in terms of their relationship with with sexuality and also their relationship with the the people that they're having sex with. So, mm. um, so that's why I, at least one of the reasons why I think that is an experience that women are reporting, right. Is, is yeah. like, because this is what's happening. Um, mm. And so there's a really interesting book here um, that I'd like to reference called not always in the mood by Sarah Hunter Murray. And she talks a lot about um, these stories that we have about men and sexuality and, um, and it's all from a, a research perspective as she's a sex researcher. But it's and it's very practical. So, I just I can't speak highly enough of this book. Um, and awesome. uh, some of the things that she talks about is this idea that like men are like non-emotional when it comes to, to sexuality. That sex is just like no strings attached for men and for women it's all about emotions. And and she kind of describes what, it, what is that I've talked about. She kind of talks about how there is like a – kernel of truth to that because of the way that we've been socialized and i and i think that's where it's important to make a distinction is that like i believe that it's socialization that's kind of created this phenomenon it's mm. not uh it's not essentialization which is like it's not this idea that it's inherent to men that like this is how male biology works that's just i think that's false um mm. I, I you know and that that's a whole nother kind of rabbit hole to go down to when we get into like uh anisogamy and and all these other you know quote-unquote principles of of mate selection and things like that i think there's a lot more to that conversation that you know people aren't really having um mm. and i've spoken about that on social media a little bit but like i don't think it's part of men's nature let's say to like be no strings attached with regards to sexuality yeah. i think there's a lot more emotionality attached to it um mm -hmm. and so uh and so to, to kind of like work through that essentially is like we need to encourage men to to feel really we need to encourage men to like tap into what sex means to them and like what needs is it fulfilling and what do they get from sex and start acknowledging that and so that's part of why like men's work and men's groups is really valuable because they start to get men opening up about what it is they mm. feel um, but if you're in a, in a relationship that can be a conversation that you have it's like what do you want to feel from sex it's like you know, I, I want to feel good i want to feel pleasure that's great but what else 
do you want to feel? What else do you want to get from sex? Do you want to feel titillated? Do you want to feel um, like, do you want to feel like in control and, and powerful? Or do you want to feel submissive and, and surrender and you want to feel taken and ravaged? Or do you want to feel romantic? Or do you want to feel uh, like in, do you, want, do you want to feel like a little bit of that, like uh, that, that kind of tension and that anxiousness from maybe a, uh, a kinky experience or do you want to bring in those elements of BDSM uh, where you kind of feel that there's some tension and anticipation. Like I kind of think of it as like a movie, right? Like for a movie, you want to be entertained, right? Mm. That's kind of like from sex, you want to feel pleasure. But what else do you want to get from the movie? Why would you choose a horror movie over an action movie? Or why would you choose a romance movie over a um, animation, right? An anime movie, like because it gives you something from that specific genre that you want right it, it meets a certain need so i kind of think of sex as the same way it's like pick your pick the genre of sex that you want to have yes it's it's pleasurable but what do you get from that why why do you want to have this particular type of sex what does it mean to you and starting to kind of ask those deeper questions and those more introspective questions can be really beneficial as a couple um because you might want one thing and your partner might want the other but you've never had that conversation and so you're like oh shit i didn't realize that's what you were having sex for is to make yourself feel like that. I was doing it to feel like that. No wonder we were kind of missing the, the boat with each yeah. other. Um, it's like, okay, well, what, what would sex look like if we both wanted to feel this particular way from it? If we're having sex for that emotional romantic connection, what would that look like? Or if we're having sex to feel I- empowered and, and in control and a bit more like, um, you know, embodied, what would that feel like? And what would that look like, I suppose? So, um, so that just kind of asking those questions can be a little bit more, uh, can scratch at the surface, I suppose, of those really s- superficial stories that we have about what men, all what all men want from sex, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Love it. Wow. That was a fabulous answer, by the way. <laughs> I love. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very, like, I feel like um used to help with these workshops, um, universe workshops, which there was a, a male version. And I guess the kinds of um, men that were coming to those workshops to learn about how to be a better uh, lover to women were already doing a fair bit of personal development work. They were already kind of, you know, grappling with what it was to be, you know, a healthy kind of well-balanced man. And so they were doing this work already, but it really, it was really beautiful seeing the answers to the questions like, you know, what do you want from, from a sexual experience? What do you want from a relationship? And it was all the same. And we did one for, we did a day for the women and a day for the men. And the answers were always the same. You know, it was like connection, Mm. intimacy, like feeling loved, feeling valid, feeling respected. And like all of, all of these sort of, um, desires, like core desires, like you were speaking into, like, you know, physical intimacy and affection and feeling seen and feeling supported and connected. Um, yeah, I think underneath all of the socialization, we have these same core needs, you know, and we're just sort of seeking them out yeah. in different ways. And yeah, so beautiful. Thank you for like explaining that so well. Oh, no worries. Like we're all humans at the end of the day, right? We just, we have human needs regardless of what our anatomy looks like or regardless of what, you know, we identify as like we're, we're humans. 
Totally, totally. Amazing. Well, I'm about to piss my pants and we're going to go eat some food. So thank you <laughs> so much for like, this was just the best. I'd love to do a, another follow-up episode in the future. I've written a whole heap of notes and, you know, I'm, I'm sure we could do an episode on each little topic um, and expand on that. But I really encourage all of you listeners to go and follow Cam. Um, it's the Cam Fraser on Instagram. Like I can't, I can't emphasize enough how like thought provoking and well researched and well articulated and just valuable all of his content is. Um, and I'll pop, you know, links in the show notes and all of that. And just before I say goodbye, I will remind you, I have labia lounge merch now. So I'll put the link in the show notes there too. If you want to get a labia lounge fanny pack or, you know, uh, I've got some jocks as well and all sorts of shit. So that's pretty exciting new development. Um, but thank you, Cam, for your time, your generous knowledge. I just had such a ball talking to you. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for inviting me on and just letting me ramble. <laughs> oh, it's such good shit. I wish we could just ramble forever. But um, yeah, to be continued. All right, love. Sure. See you next time. And that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode, or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex-positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyograph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.